Look with me. We're just going to, while we're, while we're working our way through the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, and that's the, that's the full scope of all that I want to say to you, we're, we're really just, I can't move past, you know, it took me three years plus to get through John, probably took me about that long to get through Acts, I think it's taken me that long to get through 1 Corinthians, it's, there's just too much here. Um, when Pat and Francis preached through Titus, they had a goal. Nick's gone on sabbatical for 10 weeks. We will finish Titus in 10 weeks. But you know what they lamented? We can't go deep in some of these parts. Well, see, i got all the time in the world. So I go deep. Because there's much jewels and richness and gold and silver in the wisdom and goodness of God to be dug from, from His eternal Word. And so... We're only going to get to two verses today. And so let's just look over those verses right now. Let's read through it and then we'll ask God's help. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Heavenly Father, would you allow us to learn from you today by opening our our minds, our understanding to what you have said here. You used Paul to write your words so that down through the centuries it could be preached to your people as well as to those who you're calling to be your people. So give ears to hear today, please, all of us, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this whole chapter 15 is about the resurrection. So that is the big picture of what I'm talking about. So I want to start just with this really simple, straightforward question. Do you believe Christ physically rose from the dead? Do you believe that He was as dead as anyone could ever be and three days later God raised Him from the dead back to life again? Do you believe that He then appeared to over 500 witnesses who knew Him to have been dead, expected Him to remain dead, but were convinced beyond any doubt that He was alive again? See, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most fundamental beliefs of Christianity. In fact, without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. Christ is still in the grave. You... Me, we are still in our sins. You know, if Christ is still in the grave, think about what that means. That means that after your brief life is over, comes God's judgment. Think of the impact on your life if, if you... Think of the impact on your life if you just simply... Uh, if all that awaited you after this life was over was judgment. That's all you had to look forward to. See, if Christ never rose from the grave, let me tell you how you would live. You would live in one of two ways. You would either start hoping that there really is no God, or at least that He somehow grades on a curve, or, here's the other way you would live, you would struggle to go on knowing that life is ultimately pointless. Eventually, you know what your motto would become? Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Life would have only one purpose. Squeeze as much pleasure as possible out of each day because not only does joy end when you die, but far worse, eternal suffering begins. See, if Christ never rose from the grave, that's how you would live. But guess what? There are people all around us who are living their lives in one of these two ways. They are either hoping there is no God or they are pursuing as much pleasure as possible. Both choices are vain and worthless. But your faith in Christ would be just as vain and worthless if He never rose from the grave. And so not only do you have an eternal hope, but your days, they have purpose And they have meaning. And you also have good news to share with hopeless people. So we're looking at Christ's resurrection. It's the foundational truth of the Gospel. We usually focus on this truth at least once a year, right at at Easter time. But I, I trust you don't mind looking at it again because it is so foundational to our faith as well as to our daily lives. 
In fact, Paul paints a picture of what your life should look like in light of Christ's resurrection. Look at the very last verse of chapter 15. He says, if you are living your life in light of the fact that Christ rose from the grave, here's how you will be. You will be steadfast. You will be immovable. You will always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Why will you do that? Because Christ's resurrection proves that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. There is a life to come that is beyond this one. And there is a kingdom to come that is glorious and greater than any this world has ever known. And this glorious kingdom reigning over it is a glorious king and he is coming and he's going to conquer every one of our enemies and he's going to gather to himself all the generations of the earth. Every one of His people who have put their trust in Him and He's going to rule and He's going to reign over them and His banner over them is love. See, this is all the encouragement that we need to look at Christ's resurrection. But, but the Apostle Paul, in his writing to the Corinthians, he actually has a little bit different purpose. So here, in this section of the book of Corinthians. We've walked through 14 chapters. Now we're in the 15th chapter. And in this section, Paul's not arguing for the reality of the resurrection. Um, He's not acting as if the Corinthians, as if they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Instead, what he's doing is he's reminding them, them of what he had preached to them. So Christ's resurrection is the starting point from which he's going to then argue for the bodily resurrection of all believers. So he starts from what he knows they, they already believe, that Christ rose from the grave, and then from that point he's going to argue what they still need to believe, what they seem to be confused about, namely, that all who are in Christ will be raised along with Christ. And so it's towards that end that Paul makes five assertions in these 11 verses about Christ's resurrection to which there really should be no disagreement amongst those who are truly Christians. Here here they are. All Christians believe that Christ rose from the dead. That's what we're looking at today in verses 1 and 2. But as we look down through verses 11, we see that the Scripture foretold that Christ would rise from the dead. Eyewitnesses confirmed Christ rose from the dead. Paul's life was radically transformed by Christ who rose from the dead. And the message of Christianity proclaims that Christ rose from the dead. So, let's just focus on this first assertion today, that all Christians believe that Christ rose from the dead. They believe it because that was the message that Paul preached to them. Right? He says in verses one and verse 1, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. So Paul says he's making known to them what he preached to them back when he first came to Corinth. See, he's not with them now, that's why he's writing to them. He says, remember when I first came to you, this is the gospel that I preached. In other words, I'm not, I'm not tell, he's not telling them anything new. He's reminding them of something that they seem to have forgotten. So in addition to reminding them of what he preached, he's also reminding them of their response to his preaching. They believed what Paul preached as truly good news because it told them about Jesus Christ and how through Him, guilty sinners can stand righteous before a holy God. And they believed this message. They received Christ as Lord, as Savior, and as a result, they now stand righteous before God. They're saved from the consequences of their own sin. And so what happened to them, that's true of all Christians. It can also be true of you if you're not a Christian. No matter what you've done, God is able to save you. He's able to rescue you. Here's what He's going to do. He's going to save all who, first of all, hear the gospel of the resurrected Christ. So, if you are not a Christian, you need to hear the gospel of the resurrected Christ. Well, i got good news for you today, folks. That's what we're going to talk about. The good news of Jesus Christ. You're going to hear how you can become a Christian. But you don't need to just hear it and think, well, that's great. No, you need to receive the Savior who rose from the grave. And then now I'm really talking to to all of you who have received the Savior. This is where you need to stand. You need to stand in the Gospel of a resurrected Savior. And you need to hold fast 
to your faith in the one who died and rose again. That's what we're going to look at today. See, if God is going to save you, if you walked in here a candidate for hell because you've lived your own life, your own way, the way you want to, disregarding God, you know, you don't, you don't, maybe you don't deny God and you think he's, you're cool with God, right? Wrong. You're not cool with God if you've lived life the way you've wanted to live. So here's what you need. First and foremost, you need to hear the gospel of a resurrected Savior. That's what happened to the Corinthians. Paul reminds them that the gospel that he preached to them was that Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, it was the focus of not just Paul's preaching, but it was also the focus of all the, of the apostles. How could it not be the focus of the apostles' preaching? If you had been with someone for three years who told you over and over again that he was going to die and then he was going to be raised from the dead, and you didn't quite believe it, you didn't quite know what he was talking about when he said those kinds of things, and then it happens. He's betrayed, he's, he's captured, captured, I put that in air quotes because he let himself be captured by the, by the Jews who used the Romans, who then beat him and crucified him, and they put his dead body in a grave... You would be grieving just like they were until three days later, all of a sudden he's in the room with them that was locked and he says, peace be with you. And you're now looking at a risen Savior. And all of a sudden by his doing, your mind is open to understand all those times that he talked about the fact that he would be dead and rise again. And you're just overcome with amazing, unbel- uh, amazing belief now. And you can't keep that to yourself. See, that would be true of you too, and it was true of them. All the apostles preached this message. And Paul did as well. Remember when he stood in that room? Remember what he did? They're looking at him, and, he's, and, and they're seeing him just like they'd seen him before. You know, the, they're, they're not looking at some wispy, e- ethereal spirit. He's right there. They can reach out and touch him. His hand doesn't... Their hands don't go through Him. They grab onto Him. And to prove that He was in a body, a flesh and blood body, a skin and bones body, albeit different, and we're not to that point yet. That's still coming in the rest of 15. We're going to talk about what's different. But what's the same is that's Jesus standing there in a body. And He says, you got any fish? No, He says, you got any food? And they gave Him fish. And He ate it so that they could see that He really was alive from the dead. And then He says, He opened their minds to understand. Precisely because they witnessed His death and His burial and His resurrection. He opened their minds to understand so that He would now do what He was going to do. He was going to send them out in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins in His name to all the nations. And and that's what's continuing on right down to this day, this very moment. So as one of the apostles, Paul did just that in Corinth. And this same gospel of a resurrected Christ, it is now proclaimed to you. Jesus died to accomplish the work by which sinners can be pardoned forever. His resurrection proved salvation was truly able to be offered in His name. If you remove the resurrection, you remove the salvation that He said His death accomplished. No resurrection, no salvation. Why? Because he is no different than any other sinner who dies. He's still in the grave. You and me, we're still in our sins. But God did raise him from the dead. And in doing so, he proved that he was the Son of God, just as he said that his death in our place purchased a full pardon for us all, just as he said... See, this is the message of the Gospel. This is the only Gospel there is. There's a lot of Gospel messages out there preached, but they're false Gospels. This one is backed by someone who rose from the dead. I don't know of any other Gospels that have that to claim. Do you need forgiveness? Do you need pardon for your sins? If you do, you are hearing good news and it should thrill your soul. You can forgiven. You can be rescued from the eternal death your sins deserve and the gift of eternal life is being offered to you in Jesus' name. See, this isn't just good news for sinners. It's amazing news. It's amazing grace. 
because this news can transform your life today and forever, but only if you respond to this news in faith. See, it's not just about believing some facts. It is about receiving a person. This gospel is about a Savior who rose from the grave. Not only must you hear the gospel of a resurrected Christ, secondly, you must receive the Savior who rose from the grave. Receive the Savior who rose from the grave. So Paul reminds the Corinthians that this is why they are saved. He says, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received. What does it mean to receive Jesus as Savior? That's really Christian lingo. We hear it all the time. You need to receive Jesus. But what does that mean? Well, Paul says they received the gospel. That's what they received. The basic idea is that they believed what Paul preached. But see, I think that would be minimizing what Paul is actually saying here. Because the word here for received, it comes from a Greek verb. The root of that verb is just simply the idea of to take hold, to grasp. And that word is, is the Greek word lambano. Remembering that, is that of any great deal? No, I'm just trying to impress you with my knowledge of Greek. Lambano is the word that means to receive, to take hold of. But see, Paul here adds a prefix to this word. And the prefix is para. This word para, this prefix, right, it means to come alongside, to be beside, to be near. One of my favorite shows growing up, still is in fact, I'm lost in my younger years. It was, a, it was a show called Emergency. Anybody remember the Emergency? It was about a crew of firefighters <clears throat> in Los Angeles County, Station 51. To all you emergency fans, KMG 365. But more specifically, this show was about the beginning of a new branch of firefighters known as paramedics. We're all, we're, we're all familiar with paramedics today. They're firemen. They, they're the ones who arrive first on the scene of an accident or something medical emergency of some sort, and they give basic medical treatment to stabilize someone and then transport them to the ER. Now, everything has a beginning, right? In the 1970s was when the whole idea of paramedics began. And this show was all about that. See, if there was an accident in the 70s, you can be glad some of you weren't alive in the 70s if you've been in a serious accident because all they could really do at that time was dispatch an ambulance to the scene of the, of the injury or whatever and those guys in the ambulance would pick you up, put you on a gurney, put you in a car and drive you to the hospital. But you know what happened a lot on that drive to the hospital? If your injuries were serious enough, you died. Or you got to the hospital and the doctor said, he's too far gone, there's nothing we can do. Doctors realized this, and so some of them spawned a program that they said, you know, if we can just get basic medical treatment on the scene, stabilize the injury, the injured person, they'll have a better chance of surviving the ride and then benefiting from all that a doctor can give. So they did that. You know what they called the program? Paramedics. Paramedics are medics who come alongside you they're right next to you. Their hands are in your body. And they treat you so that you can live long enough to be then treated by a doctor. So Paul takes this word lumbano, which means to grasp, to understand. He adds this prefix to it, para lumbano. He is painting a picture with this word to explain what the Corinthians did. They didn't just come to an intellectual understanding of facts about Jesus that they you know, didn't have before. But they received to themselves this Jesus as the Savior they need. And as a result of Paul's preaching about Christ, he says they welcomed Him, Jesus. They welcomed Him. They received Him into their heart. They received Him into their lives. That's the idea into your life. And if you're a Christian, you don't, you don't just believe some facts to be true. No, if you're a Christian, you have received Christ as being the Savior that you need to save you from the condemnation you deserve. 
And as wonderful as the news of His death for sinners is, it's not simply about what He did that matters. It's Him that you want. And this word means that you take upon oneself, you take to yourself, you admit not just that you need what Christ did, you need Christ Himself, and so you receive Him to yourself. And Jesus, He used this same word, paralambano, to say how He's going to receive us in the same way. In John 14.3, He says, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See, when you receive Jesus to yourself this way, He says, I'll receive you to Myself when I return and you'll be with Me wherever I am, there you will be. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is coming back. He's not just saying, hey, get on the bus, let's go to heaven. He's going to take you to Himself so you can be with Him. When your eyes awaken in death, from death, the first thing you're going to see is the face of your Savior. The one who died for you. You're not going to look around and go, ooh, streets of gold, pearly gates, angels flying about. You're going to say, there's my Savior. Can you see that this is more than just understanding some facts about what Jesus did for you? It's bringing Christ to yourself into your very life, your world, because He is what you need and you need Him now and you need Him forever. So see what Paul is saying here, Christian? This means that you can believe in Jesus without receiving Jesus. Hear what I'm saying. It is possible to believe in Jesus without receiving Jesus. And you can do this because you selfishly want what Christ accomplished on the cross without ever really wanting Jesus Himself. Happens all too often. People want salvation, but they don't want the Savior. Yes, I want salvation. No, I don't want the ways you're going to change my life. Paul warns them to understand that this type of belief is possible. So given all the issues that are in the church that we have walked through as we've gone through this letter, right? it's understandable why he's going to warn them about this type of false belief, this unsaving belief. He calls it a vain belief, a worthless belief. And he says this Gospel, it saves the one who receives Christ and who holds fast to the truth about Christ. And he says, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is saying it's possible to believe in such a way that's void of any value. And you do this when you want the benefits of Christ's death, but don't want Christ Himself to come in and take over your life. Just give me the forgiveness. Just give me the eternal life. But no, I'm really not interested in a relationship with you, Jesus. You don't say it in those words. That's what you're doing and you know it. So your salvation is rooted in a person and it's rooted in what He did, not in just in some mental acknowledgement of some facts or some understanding, right? Your salvation is personal because it's possible only through a person who loved you, who suffered for you, who died for you, who rose again from the grave and He desires to be with you forever. That's why He did all this. Salvation, it's not just... It's not something you do just in case. You don't just try God. You know, what you, you know what you do purchase just in case? Fire insurance. You have insurance just in case. Receiving Jesus is entering into a personal relationship with the living God made possible because this God left heaven. He became a man to seek you out. The mess that you had made of yourself and your life to rescue you, to cleanse you, to heal you. Pardon and forgiveness is not just given to those who simply believe that Jesus died and rose again. The demons know that Jesus died and rose again. You're not going to see them in heaven. It's given to those who receive Jesus to themselves in their whole being. All of my life is yours, Jesus. It may be hard for me to follow you in some of these ways, in some of these areas, but all my life is yours. It's wanting Him. 
wanting a relationship with Him. Jesus even defines eternal life in terms of a relationship with Him. He says, this is eternal life. That they may know You, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom He sent. Have you received Jesus this way? Or is it possible that you have believed in vain because you only wanted what He offers, not Himself? See, it's not just forgiveness you need. You need Christ. You need to believe all that's true of Him. His death, His resurrection, His exaltation. And with Him comes all that He accomplished. Full pardon and forgiveness. A home in heaven. A glorious future. The world cannot compete with this. Why would you want the world over this? You're too short-sighted. You're thinking this world has good things. You know it doesn't. Empty things that are passing away. See, when you receive Christ this way, your whole being, the Spirit of God, He indwells you. He gives you that awareness that you belong to Him. You cry out, Abba, Father. See, this is not mere theory. It's not just religion. It's a relationship with the One who is sovereign over everything in your life. Set you free from your bondage to your sins and now He's everything to you. Are you still going to struggle with sin? Yeah. Are you going to still pursue things that grieves God's Spirit? Yes. But at the end of it all, you want Christ more. Because Christ is more than all that this world has to offer. He satisfies you now. He satisfies you forever. And so to receive this Gospel means to receive the Savior who accomplished all that makes this Gospel good news for sinners. So have you received the Gospel of a Savior who died and rose again from the grave or have you believed in vain? I want to talk a little bit more about that if there's time at the end. So, in, so the apostles, they preached about a resurrected Christ whom the Corinthians then received into their lives by faith. So if you're a Christian, you have done the same. You have heard this Gospel. You've not only believed it to be true, but you have received to yourself the person who is at the center of this Gospel, Jesus Christ. And in this Gospel, you must thirdly stand. You need to stand in the Gospel of a resurrected Christ. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the Gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand. Now I, I believe that Paul's main point here is to stand firmly in the truth of the resurrection. I think we all get the idea of standing for something that we believe in, right? You've claimed your ground. You've staked your flag. Here you stand. You will not be moved, right? So in regard to your theology, the resurrection of Christ is a matter of first importance, not up for negotiation. I can't deny, though, here that when in this reference to standing in the Gospel, I can't deny the possibility that Paul might also be referring to what the Gospel makes possible through Christ to stand in God's presence. Jude 24 puts it so beautifully. It speaks of Christ who is able to make you stand in the presence of of His glory, blameless and with great joy. That's Jude 24. What What a beautiful way to describe what Christ has done for you. See, one day you're going to stand before the God who sees everything you've done knows every thought you've ever had, heard every word you've ever spoken, even the ones no one else heard. Are you ready for Him to weigh all that you've done in His scales? Will you be found guilty of dishonoring and disobeying God in your actions, in your thoughts, in your words? You can bank on it. The scales will practically tip over. All of us have sinned beyond our ability to even conceive and have failed to glorify and to honor God as He deserves. But Christ is able to make you stand in His presence, blameless, with great joy. He's able to justify you before a God who is holy, holy, holy. Believing this Gospel of a resurrected Christ receiving into the whole of your life the Savior who rose from the grave, that is where you must stand because it is only the only way where you will be able to stand accepted, justified before God. 
even though you've sinned greatly against Him. And the reason I think that that Paul has this potentially in mind is because of what he says in verse 3 about the Gospel. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. See, the only reason that you can stand before God is because your sins, the very sins that should condemn you, they were put upon Christ. He bore the penalty of those sins so, so you wouldn't have to. You don't bear them anymore. And in their place, He says He gave you righteousness. His righteousness. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so we can stand, not because of anything we've done, but because Christ, who He died in our place and then He rose again. He bore our sin in full and He gave us His own righteousness so that we can now stand blameless before God. Can you think of any greater joy than that? That is why this is called good news. Now, there's two books in the Bible that are are prominent in explaining this glorious truth of justification. One is the book of Romans, specifically chapters 3 through 5, and the other is the book of Hebrews, chapters 9 through 10. I just want to jump in and look at a couple verses in these two books that, that should encourage us. Look at Hebrews. Turn to chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verse 26. It's good to have your eyes on this. Hebrews 9 verse 26. He says, Now once at the consummation of the ages, Christ has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Jesus put away your sin. Sin is that which incurs guilt before God. Sin is an offense that justly demands a penalty. Sin is unrighteousness that is willful, deserving of punishment. Sin is not something that the church made up to try to scare people in order to control them. And you know that this is true because your conscience warns you day after day when you do wrong. You try to tell yourself there's no God. But as hard as you try, you can't ignore the inescapable feeling that you are guilty. You want to know what the world's solution is to a guilty conscience? Just shut it off. Don't listen to it. Don't feel bad for not obeying a God that doesn't exist. There's a reason, though, why every culture on earth knows it's wrong to steal knows it's wrong to lie or to murder or to commit adultery. And it's because the God who made every person wrote His laws upon their heart. He then created them with a conscience, a mechanism that He made, designed to warn a person when they disobey what they know is wrong. So your guilty conscience is God's warning system against sin. Is your conscience plaguing you. The worst thing that you could do if that's true of you is ignore it. There are people all over this world who are seeking relief from their guilty conscience. Psychiatrists, pills, alcohol, drugs, sex. They can all give you temporary relief or distraction. right? Avoidance for a period of time, but they can't give you what you really need. Forgiveness. Relief from a guilty conscience, it it begins with you agreeing that you have sinned against God. So you confess your sin to Him. You seek His forgiveness. More than likely, there's others that you need to seek forgiveness to in your life, but, but you've sinned first and foremost against God, and so you begin there. You've done these sins repeatedly. You've done them boldly. You've done them willfully. And Hebrews says, Christ put all of that away by the sacrifice of Himself. That is why forgiveness is possible. But God wants to do more than forgive you. Turn one chapter over, chapter 10, verse 14. He says, For by one suffering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. See, Christ came to do what uh, what was necessary for forgiveness 
as well as to make you stand blameless before God. And the proof that he accomplished what he came to do is... Now jump back to chapter 1 of Hebrews. Look at verse 3. It says, When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because the work of saving sinners was finished. Amen? It's finished. Have your sins been put away forever? Or is your conscience still condemning you? Are you hoping that there really is no judgment when this life is over? That's what every unrepentant sinner is hoping for. But I'm in love, I tell you, the, the, the Scriptures are clear. God's Word is clear. Jump over to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Look at verse 23. Romans 3, verse 23. Many of you, I'm sure, could quote it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The idea is not that you've you've tried hard, but you've come up short. No, it's that you have sinned and you are utterly devoid of the glory that God made you to give to Him. You don't have any to offer Him. And that's why He made you. You owe Him something you can't give Him. Oh, but praise God, even though this is true of you, of me, of everyone, verse 24 says that you can be justified as a gift by His grace. How? Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Christ can make you stand before God, blameless, fully accepted. How? Through the redemption that He purchased on the cross by His death. Verse 25, God displayed Jesus, He says there, as a propitiation or in His blood. Now, don't get tripped up by a word you don't know. Propitiation is just a word that means a sacrifice that was offered in the place of another. That's what Jesus did. He offered Himself in your place. But the key thing about a propitiating, a propitiating sacrifice and that this, the focus of this world is that this sacrifice that was offered, it completely satisfied the demands that were made. That's what Christ did for me. He sacrificed Himself in my place in order to fully satisfy the wrath of of God that my sins deserve. And He'll do that for you too. Christ took your place. He bore your sin. He paid your penalty. He satisfied the just demands of a holy God so that you could stand fully justified, blameless before God. That, my friends, is the good news of the Gospel. And this is the Gospel that you need to receive because there is no other way that a sinner can stand before a holy God. And all you need to do is receive this Savior to yourself. Believing that His death and His resurrection are able to save you. And then you start following and obeying Him. Why wouldn't you want to follow and obey one who had given His life so that you could stand blameless before God? See, this is the Gospel that Paul preached to them. They believed it. They're now standing in this. It also, it's also the Gospel, verse 2, says, by which you are saved. But notice... I want to come back to this phrase I mentioned earlier. Notice that he inserts, though, a qualifying phrase here. You're saved by this gospel only if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. See, if you do not stand on the resurrection, your faith is deficient. It's empty. It's as worthless as it would be if Christ never rose from the grave. So you are still in your sins because the Savior you believe in is dead. He's still in the grave, and that faith can't save you. That's why this matters. Now, Paul is not suggesting here, though, I want to be clear about this, he's not suggesting that you can lose your salvation. He's warning the Corinthians, as well, by extension, all of us, against a faith that cannot save. The Corinthians holding, what the Corinthians were holding fast to was what Paul had preached to them, which was about a risen Christ That was the result of a genuine salvation. And then their ongoing faith in Christ was also evidence that they were truly saved. And the change that had taken place in their lives 
right? And, and he's addressed a lot of those issues along the way. Those changes that had taken place were evidence of the power of Christ's resurrection in their lives. Now, that being said, there were some in the, tr- in the church. That's why he's writing this, right? They lacked a true saving faith. And for that reason, they did not continue in the Word of God. They did for a season, but they eventually returned to their old way of life. Now, one thing Paul loved to teach about was the security of the one who they have put their faith in, the security of the believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, Look, if you're still there, look at Romans chapter 8. Again, this is a verse you're very familiar with, but it's great to hear it again. Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 29, says, For those whom He, God, foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. See, your salvation, it is... is a result of your faith in Christ and what He has done. But what is equally clear in Scripture is that you are kept by God's power. Your salvation is kept, not primarily because you hold fast to Christ, but because Christ holds fast to you. The fact that you are still holding on to Him is evidence that He is holding on to you. So the professing Christian who hears the Gospel, believes, and brings their life in line with the teachings of Christ, but then fully rejects Christ at some point later on in life, it proves that the salvation that they claimed was never real. If you're able to let go of God, it's because you're the only one who is doing the holding he does not, a person who walks away from Christ fully rejecting him does not belong to God and therefore God doesn't keep him by, the, by his power because he keeps all who are truly his by his power. And the reason Paul says that, that, uh, that Christ was not holding on to them and therefore they could walk away is because their faith is vain, it was never real. He cannot hold fast to Christ because he has not been held fast by Christ. Now, there's many places in Scripture that that speak of a faith that is useless to save. Jesus Himself told the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 to show that some seeds of the Gospel, they fall on shallow, weedy soil. There can be some initial response, some initial growth, but things like the cares of this world cause it to die out. He tells us that there are such things as tares that look just like wheat, but they're not. And not until the end of the age sometimes will we even know the difference. Jesus spoke of many kinds of fish being caught all in the same gospel net. All of us hearing the same gospel, caught up in the same gospel net, but then He says that there are some fish that are kept and some fish that are thrown back. He spoke of houses that had no foundation. Servants who wasted what their master gave them and then he cast them out. He warned of gates and paths that seemed right, but only led to destruction. Now to help us see the difference between saving faith in Christ and a vain, worthless faith, let's compare two men in Scripture. Peter and Judas. In John chapter 6, You don't need to turn there. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? It was after that that many people turned away from Jesus, no longer followed Him. Jesus then asked His 12 disciples if they were also going to abandon Him. And it was Peter who answered and said that He could never leave Him. And then He says, Did I myself not choose you, Jesus said? The 12. And He says this, And yet one of you is a devil. The devil that Jesus was referring to, one of the twelve, was Judas Iscariot who, would later, Iscariot who would later betray Jesus. But notice that we have Peter and Judas side by side here. Both express their faith in Christ. 
both believed, right, in the, in the sense that they knew Christ personally. They saw the same miracles. They committed years of their life to following this Jesus. But their belief in Christ was different. Peter would later deny Christ. You know that. Three times. Big highlight. I'm sure Peter really appreciates that. Big highlight. But after his denial, this is why, this is for our benefit, after his denial, what did Peter do? He repented. And then what did he become? A pillar in the church. Compare that with Judas. He betrayed Jesus. And he never repented. Even though he realized he'd made a huge mistake, he felt great remorse, even to the point of of taking his own life. Nowhere in Scripture is is Judas ever presented as a disciple who lost his salvation. Rather, he is one who had truly never believed and was truly never saved. Jesus was referring to Judas when he said in John 6.64, There are some among you who do not believe. See, Jesus warns that there are many professing Christians who have a useless faith. He says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Jesus says, I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Pay special attention to how Jesus identifies a false believer. They are those who practice lawlessness. Meaning, their lives are characterized by lawlessness. What is lawlessness? It's to live as an utter disregard for God and for His laws. So there are professing Christians, some of them likely in our church, who are living double lives. You see them on Sunday, they look, they act, they sound just like everybody else. But on the other days of the week, they're practicing lawlessness. They are living in utter disregard for God and for His laws. I'm not talking about the professing believer who sins, who stumbles, who falls, even repeatedly, even in grievous ways. Peter denied Christ three times. Christians can and do sin, and they can do so grievously. The difference, again, Peter, is that you're grieved by your sin such that you repent. And you do so often as you need to. When you played with your sin long enough and the mounting guilt is upon you, I can't keep doing this. Christ owns me. I can't keep doing this. Why do you do this? Because you can't let go of Christ. Why don't you just say, you know, forget this. I'm done being a Christian. You know what? The world is having so much more fun out there. I mean, I know I've been in this church for a long time. I know I have a lot of relationships with people, but you know what? It's over. I'm done playing the charade game. I'm going to go do what I really want to do. See, why isn't that true of you, Christian, who keeps playing with your sin, keeps coming back to it like a dog to his vomit? You hate it. I hate it. Why don't you just let Christ go? Because you can't. Who else has the words of life? You're grieved by your sin. And so you repent. You hold fast to Him. The greater and the glorious truth. This is why we praise His name and sing of His amazing grace is that He is holding on to you, Christian. He said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The most powerful being in all the universe has you in his hand. No one can snatch you from there. So struggling Christian, hold fast to your faith in Christ. He's worthy of your trust. Never forget though that it is Jesus who has hold of you and no one can ever snatch you out of His hand and it is this grace that will be what drives you to start living for Him and leave this sin behind. That's what it is. Realizing that He'll never let you go. 
You deserve to be let go. You, be, you deserve to be cast down into hell alive. But He's not going to let you go. And that's what ultimately makes you say, I don't want to sin anymore. Now maybe you've come to realize that you've believed in Christ in vain. You've believed in some facts about Jesus, but you've never really received Him to yourself, made Him your everything. Each of us need to ask if your faith, if our faith is resting in the person of Jesus Christ and what He's done, or did you just simply have some emotional experience at which time you prayed some prayer or you agreed with some statements about Christianity. See, the real evidence of your faith being vain or not is whether or not you're still in bondage to your sins. No prayer can save you, friend. Believing that Jesus was real, that doesn't save you, friend. Christ alone can save you and your faith must be in Him and what the Scriptures say that He did, He died. He rose again. And those who come to faith um, desire not just what He's done, but Him. To know Him. To follow Him. To obey Him. To fellowship with Him. And to fellowship with His people. So stop playing games with God. Your soul's at stake. Is Christ really God? Did He really come to earth, die, rise again from the grave? Do you know that you're a sinner who deserves to be cast into hell for eternity? If you truly believe these things, this demands a response from you. If it's just in your head, you just say, I believe that. But if you really believe it, it demands a response. And that response is not just some tears. It's not just a prayer. No, it is a cry to God for Him to be merciful to you, the sinner. So humble yourself before God See your sinful wretchedness before God. Cry out to Him for mercy. He will pour it out upon you lavishly. That is the God who came. That is the God who died, rose again, and now offers you pardon. He will pour out His compassion and mercies upon you. Amen. Come to Him today. He will save you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for sending Your Son, the Son of love, the Son of Your love, who was God and became man to die in the place of wretched sinners. We praise His name. We preach His gospel. Receive, cause people to receive Him today and be saved. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.